The text for the sermon is taken from the epistle. Uh, Be of the same mind toward one another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Our Anglican fathers uh, saw fit to place before the church the whole of Romans chapter 12 uh, in the first three uh, Sundays of Epiphany. Uh, and so we are completing that task today. St. Paul insists that right worship, orthodoxy, uh, not only is a worship that pleases God, but that right worship forms our interior lives as baptized persons, as well as forming our life together within a parish. Uh, worship, as I said last week and the week before, is in some sense remedial. It is God's instrument of salvation as well as His instrument for perfecting us in grace. Orthodox worship uh, is a matter of parishioners uh, gathering around a specific altar in a specific parish. In our case, All Saints and this altar right here before us. Uh, Our lives are gathered up then, right now, Uh, in this worship, gathered up, collected, recollected over and over again around a common altar where we worship Christ, our God, and where Christ comes to us objectively and visibly in the Blessed Sacrament. Uh, And this is, as I've said before, the perfect image and the perfect experience of our participation in Christ. St. Paul writes, for as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. That phrase is often overlooked. Everyone members one of another. I've also said over the past few weeks, I've said over the past few years, uh, that we share as much as we can, uh, Jesus's horizon, that is, Jesus's understanding and, and, and grasp of the world of men and things, as much as we can, we want to share his horizon. And as we grow into Christian maturity, our horizons expand and deepen to include more and more of Jesus's horizon. But Christians, and this is our tendency, Christians have to uh, realize that we cannot circumscribe, that is, draw a circle around, here's Jesus' horizon, here's the church's horizon, but over here is my work life, over here is my education and my entertainment, and over here is my national political life, as those, those circles have nothing to do with the first. That is not true. You can't draw circles outside of Jesus Christ. You cannot circumscribe him and then separate him from everything else. What I'm saying is this, there's no such thing as secular. That's a myth. That's a heresy. There is no such thing as secular. Everything we participate in is shot through with the truth 
uh, and the uh, horizon and, and the blessing of Jesus Christ. Y'all with me? Can you hear me? Okay. But here's something else. You have to remember this. Always remember this, that the world knows nothing of that. The world knows nothing of the Christian horizon. And they can't know it. And so anytime you're engaged in the world, you have to continually remember that they have no understanding of what your life is because they have no grasp of Jesus's uh, horizon and what it means to live in this world. St. Paul writes, recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. And if possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Uh, dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy feed, uh, hunger, feed him. And if he thirst, uh, give him drink. Uh, we forget, do we not? We forget that we are members of Christ and that we are also members one of another. St. Paul underscores this reality of both the reality of the body of Christ as a whole and the reality of the individual Christian who is a member uh, of Christ. Uh, earlier on, St. Paul wrote, not to think of oneself more highly than one ought to think. Uh, and I suggest to you that the one way that's accomplished is to realize that I am a member of you and you are a member of me and you're members one of another. As difficult as that is to grasp, uh, that, is, uh, that is the reality of the body of Christ. Christians, Christian parishioners uh, live in a parish and the center of their life is the altar of that parish. We live side by side with one another. And we are side by, not as side by side as we would like to be right now, but certainly we will later. We live side by side one another, uh, side by side at the birth and the baptism of our children, side by side in the worship of the Blessed Trinity and the Holy Communion. In a manner of speaking, when Father Dan or I or Father Sean or Father Gene visits a, a, a homebound parishioner, uh, or you, one of you, or several of you provide meals for new moms or dads. That is our whole parish participating, not just ourselves as individuals. Paul says being members of the one body and members of one another is the ultimate meaning of our life. Christians live out their lives then in, as parishioners, both within the parish and then outside of the parish in, in the world. But we're never merely individuals. We're always members of Christ and members one of another. Now listen, St. Paul wrote this chapter to the Romans. And when he wrote this, he sent it to several, there were several little tiny house churches in Rome. Look at the very last chapter of Rome, and he names them. Uh, there were absolutely no more than a few dozen souls scattered throughout the city 
that had a population at that time of close to a million people. Think about that. Paul is writing to under a hundred Christians. Well, probably more like 40 or 50 Christians. That book of Romans that we cherish so much was written to maybe 40, 50, stretching it 60 Christians in a city that had a population of a million. Christians were invisible. Christians had no power, no wealth, no pull. They were essentially non-entities. By the year 90, 35 years after St. Paul wrote this, each house church had grown a little. They had a bishop, they had assisting priest, whose job it was to preach the gospel, and most specifically, uh, uh, to celebrate the Holy Communion and to oversee the care of the poor, the sick and the widows. Still, not very many Christians. Around the year 110, uh, the house churches had grown a little, uh, and they had planted other parishes, but still Christians were mostly invisible, and when Christians were noticed, listen to what I'm saying. Christians were considered weird, just strange and weird. They weren't considered to be dangerous. They were, they were not good citizens. They understood that, and the people, their neighbors understood it, but they really were not considered to be a menace to the center of the universe in Rome. Not at all. Urban life, and this is where I, I want you to think about this and think about our life today, because I don't need to draw all of these parallels for you. You can do this yourself well enough. Urban life for Catholic parishes and their families at that time in Rome was immersed in Roman ancestral traditions uh, in which the Roman family is a nursery of Roman virtue and the most basic building block of Roman society and ruled over by the paterfamilias. Our words, faith, piety, and other words that are familiar and important to us and have Christian meaning, those very same words were shared by Romans and had been shared by Romans for hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years. But those very same words were saturated with pagan meaning, not Christian meaning. So we think of faith, we think of the faith, we think of our faith in Jesus, we think of Jesus' faithfulness uh, to, uh, to the Father. Uh, we think of piety, we think of the faithfulness of Mary Magdalene, we think of the piety of the Blessed Virgin uh, Mary. But the Roman virtue of faith, now listen, the Roman virtue of faith meant and referred exclusively to the trustworthy, reliable Roman family man who put being a Roman citizen first in his life. That's what faithfulness meant. Dignitas, where we get the word dignity, uh, like as in the dignity of the individual, which is a Christian ideal and nowhere else is it found. Dignitas was the upshot of all of, all of the virtues 
and it was considered to be, this is in Rome, dignitas was the sum of a man's reputation and personal influence. Dignity had nothing to do with your interior life and your exterior life conforming. That's the way we would think of dignity. dignity. That man has dignity. That woman has dignity. We think of their interior life corresponding to their exterior life, don't we? But not them. Dignity exclusively means your reputation and your political influence. That's exactly what it means and nothing else. And it's accrued through years and years of service to the city and to the ideal pagan family. Stories of Roman gods and goddesses, religious and civic festivals in Rome were the basic pedagogical tools for the formation of civic and family virtue in the pagan world. Now let me ask you, how on earth can a little parish church 100 people, 150 people in the city that's got a million people in it. How can they hope to flourish? Uh, how can they hope for their children to flourish in a world that is not only so different, but hostile, truly bedrock hostile to what you believe to be the most important things in life, to basic Christianity? After all, Christians back then still had to work for a living, just like us. Uh, they had to buy food at the market. When Christians were taken ill, they needed a doctor. Uh, when they died, they needed to be buried. Uh, the children had to be educated, mentored in a trade or a profession, and one day hopefully have families and children of their own there was no way it, you can apply this to where we're living today, can't you? I don't need to do that for you. You can see the parallels here with our own culture. There was no way that a Christian parent could insulate their children from the pagan world that was looming every time they walked out of their house into the street, onto the sidewalk. It hit them in the face. They couldn't insulate them. Christian parents who wanted the best for their children, if they could afford it, sent them to school, and the only education available was a pagan education. There's a Christian child's notebook that was found, well, several decades ago uh, that dates back to the fourth century in Rome. It's in good shape. This is a Christian child who uh, went, to, went to this school and uh, in his pagan classes, he had to record the poems and the stories about Roman gods and goddesses that Rome considered uh, to be formative and moral lessons. But from a Christian point of view, believe me, you don't even want to read them. They're utterly immoral. Every time the child made a new page, he put a cross at the top of it, or he put the Cairo. And that's how we know it was a Christian child.
The way of life that St. Paul, so you read what St. Paul is saying, how he's directing us to behave. Read that in light of what I've just told you about urban life in Rome. The way St. Paul, the way of life that he insists upon for Christians, it just didn't, it, it doesn't make sense whatsoever to the pagans of Rome because it is so far beyond their horizon. Paul is concerned that Christians behave toward their pagan neighbors in a manner that may be summed up as the imitation of Christ. But the important point uh, is that we imitate Jesus the Messiah who did not curse, but rather he prayed for the forgiveness of those who crucified him and loved them. And so he wants us to imitate that behavior, to imitate Christ. But to a Roman, that response uh, of, of caring for, forgiving the people who are persecuting you, that response to mistreatment is a sign of weakness, and it covers yourself with shame. The virtues that we admire, like humility, uh, like forgiveness, uh, from a Roman point of view, are downright immoral. Now, that needs to sink in. I mean, this is not hard. It is difficult to, to understand that that really is the case, that the virtues that we laud for the Romans that Paul's writing to at this time, those are repugnant. But it doesn't matter, St. Paul says. For Christians, wishing evil upon a person that's harmed you, much less actually doing harm, is simply irreconcilable with following Christ. So here's, here's what happened. I've got the last paragraph, okay? Y'all with me? Can I say a show of hands? Can I hear an amen? Okay. Less than 100 words, believe me. St. Paul says Christians should not pursue power alliances. It says it right there in that text. But rather, Christians ought to pursue affiliation and caring relationships with those from whom you think you have nothing to gain. <laughs> that's absolutely the case. And that sounds just as ridiculous today as it must have sounded to the Romans back then. Christian behavior, and this is the upshot of it, Christian behavior uh, in Rome, intended or not, not only did it dishonor the Roman virtue, but it brought scorn upon it, and it eventually wiped it out. This is the last sentence. But remember this. St. Paul is not writing to the Romans. St. Paul was not setting out to bring down Roman culture. And it's not our job to bring down this rotten culture. St. Paul was not writing and, and setting out to bring down Roman culture. He was setting out to be faithful to Jesus, the Messiah. And that's your job and my job. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.